If you have a Bible, I want to just encourage you to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to give you just a little update on kind of our teaching calendar as well over the next few weeks. So uh, this Sunday and next, uh, we have uh, some standalone messages that we're going to be bringing to you. And then on Sunday, August 9th, we actually start our our study in the book of John that will go on for uh, for some time. But we're really excited to get back into a book study. And so so Sunday, August 9th, um, we're going to get into the book of John. And what I've started to do already, just to kind of get my heart and mind around that, is every day just reading sections of the book of John. So if you don't have a regular habit like that already, I just really want to encourage you just to start reading uh, through the book of John and take the chunks and sizes that you're comfortable with and that work well for you and just start to really kind of process and just get ourselves ingrained in the story uh, that John brings us of the person of Jesus. So Sunday, August 9th, starting the book of John. Really excited about that. But today we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, again, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. This season that we're in, if nothing else, is really offering us the opportunity um, to consider what's being revealed or what's being exposed in us and in our church and, and in the world. I was talking with a friend who's a pastor in another state, and he said, God's really giving us this season, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's a sifting season. It's a season where things are really rising to the top, and God's giving us an opportunity to look at those things and to deal with those things. And one of the biggest things that I believe is being revealed is just our overwhelming need for the presence and the power of God in our lives, in our church, and in our world. Uh, and personally, you might be in a season of life as a Jesus follower where where you just really feel like you need something from God, where he shows up in a very powerful way. It, it could be that you're just really needing from God to restore the joy of your salvation, that joy and passion and intimacy and adoration that you had at one time. You want God just to restore that and renew that all over again, and you need a, a new level of devotion or new level of intimacy of God. And that's really kind of the backdrop that we see in 1 Kings after, chapter 18. And we're going to see that really in the very first verse um, of the story that we're going to look at today. So 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, it says this, Later on in the third year of the drought. Now, we just got to stop there real quick um, because we're in the third year of a very long drought. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's been a while since the, the, there's been a, a, a sense of, of God working. It's been a while since the, the God's presence has been felt moving. And it could be like that for you. You could, you could be sitting there today and you're thinking, it's just really been a while since I looked in the mirror and felt like, yeah, God, you're really doing something in my life. And here's what God says to the prophet Elijah. He said, go present yourself to King Ahab and tell him that I'm going to soon send rain. So again, the background of this story, there's a drought in all the land and we're three years into it. So three years of no rain, three years of crops that are withering, animals that are dying, people that are rationing their waters, three years of continued prayers before God for water, for a miracle from God, for a downpour, for this rain that we need in our lives. And again, that could be a way that you would describe just the season that you feel like that you're in personally. You would say, I really feel like I'm in a kind of drought, a kind of spiritual drought. I'm in a dry place in my life. I need the rain from heaven to fall on the soil of my life. And that's really what's at stake here 
at Mount Carmel. And I wanna give you the flyover uh, and kind of unpack the story, uh, and then we'll go back and, and kind of really dig a little bit deeper. And, and for some of you, this will be the very first time you've ever heard the story, and for others, this is maybe something that you've been pretty familiar with, but we'll work through this in our time together this morning. So uh, in this moment, Israel, the people of God, have really turned their back on God, and they have Ahab as their king, and Ahab is a wicked king. They are worshiping the idols of the people that are around them, and there is the voice of God in the person of Elijah speaking on behalf of God, and he goes to Ahab the king, and he says, bring all your prophets, bring all these false prophets who worship these false gods, Baal and Asherah, and meet me on Mount Carmel. And so 850 of these false prophets show up, and there's 450 for Baal, 400 for the goddess Asherah, and there's one man of God named Elijah. And if you skip down in uh, 1 Kings 18 to verse 20, we kind of get this, the, the showdown here uh, on Mount Carmel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood on their altar, but without setting fire to it. Now prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. And then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And the people all agreed. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. And they called in the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. They danced, hobbling around their altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. He said, you have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god, perhaps he's daydreaming or relieving himself, or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. And they raved all afternoon until the time of evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. So Elijah says, look, you put one bull on your altar and I'll put one on mine and you call out to your God and I'll call out to Yahweh, the one true God, and we'll see what happens. And the prophets of Baal go crazy and they cry louder and louder and louder. But the sacrifice just sits on the wood and then Elijah takes his turn in verse 30. And Elijah called to the people, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. And he piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and he laid pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. And after they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And then when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he had said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O oh Lord, answer me. And answer me so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God. 
and that you've brought them back to yourself. And immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, that even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Elijah says, God, get glory in the face of these idols and fire fall from heaven. And it burned up everything in the spot. And in that moment, the people knew that there is one true God and his name is Jehovah because fire fell on the mountain. And the story for most of us is that that's what we want in our lives. We want fire to fall from heaven. We want the consuming presence and the power of God to be evident in our lives. We for most of us, we don't really just want to go through the motions as Christians. We don't want our lives to just look the same that they looked six months ago or a year ago. We want something fresh from God. We want new fire in our lives. And this story shows us how it shows up. Now, the, the first thing in this story is we got to really understand the context because basically what has happened is that the people of God have become absolutely infatuated with the idols of their world. When they started on their journey, that God had delivered them out of Egypt, but now that they're in the promised land, there's all these other idols of nations, and they're in love with the stories of all these other gods. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God, he knows this is going to happen. So he's trying to prepare them for a life with him in the midst of people who are just anti-God. And he reminds them that Yahweh, that he is their true God, and that they're to love him with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. And he says, do not forget that I am your Lord. He reminds them that he is the one that led them out of bondage and he's the one that led them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land and into freedom. And that's what he wants to do for us as well. The culture always is turning that story around because the, the cultural narrative is the story that God wants to lead you out of the promised land and into slavery, that God's really going to take you away from what you want most. But God's always been leading his people towards true freedom and true joy and true satisfaction. And he still wants to do that today. And the enemy is always turning that story around and always trying to convince us that full surrender to Jesus equals less in our lives, not more. But God throughout the whole Bible shows us what is true liberty and what is true freedom. And it's been that way from the beginning. God was very upfront with humanity. He said, look, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to part the sea. I'm going to come down. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to set you free. And I'm going to lead you into a land that already has everything that you need. And I'm going to lead you into this finished work. But there are going to be some challenges along the way. And so God has to tell them, look, be careful that you don't forget about me. Now, if you know this story and if you're a part of this story, you're going to be thinking, how could we ever forget God? How could we ever forget what God has done in such a miraculous way? But they forget. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, 15, God has to tell me, says, It is the Lord your God that you should fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, because the, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. And lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. All right, so what is up with that? What's up with God being jealous? Well, God's not insecure here. He's saying, look, I am the Lord and there's no other God but me. I will not share my glory with anyone or anything else. This is God defending God. And you think, well, okay, well, why does God have to defend God? 
because you aren't. God is a promoter of God because we normally and naturally are not promoters of God. We're promoters of ourselves. And if God didn't promote the glory of God, you wouldn't know about the glory of God. So the Bible tells us that the heaven declares the glory of God. The creation declares his glory. The cross of Christ declares his glory. His word declares his glory. And he declares his glory. And God is saying, look, I love you so much. And because of that, I'm telling you what is best for you. And that is to not have any other gods but me. God knows who he is, and he knows that the best thing for us is him. So he promotes himself He promotes himself for us so that we can get the best. A lot of times we think, well, God, he just really wants us to stop doing all the bad stuff, right? Okay, so stop, you know, looking at certain things or stop eating or drinking or smoking certain things or stop like, just talking a certain way or maybe thinking a way. And all those things matter. But what God is really trying to drill down and dial into here with his people and us today is that he's most concerned with our worship because God knows when our worship is right, our life will be right. And if your life is right as a result of right worship, then you will have the right kind of heart in your life. You can change your behavior and never change your worship. And God is after your affection and he wants to open your eyes to see who he is. So let's get a little bit of background on Ahab who's this king. And if you just flip back just uh, just one page there to, to 1 Kings chapter 16, you're going to get just a sense of who Ahab is, who's leading the, the people of God now. And in verse 29, listen to who Ahab is. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Azaz's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, listen to the kind of guy he is. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. And you might not even know who she is, but that she just sounds like bad news. He married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down and worship of Baal. And first Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole and he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So we're in the promised land, the land that God has given his people, the land he's delivered his people to. And Ahab says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm the king of Israel. I'm going to build a temple to another God and worship him in the land that God had promised and provided. Now, Baal is a word uh, that means Lord and was a God of sun and storm. And now, a lot of times you'd see him uh, kind of with this weird hat depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand. And Asherah was his mom and she was the goddess of fertility. And it was thought uh, that Baal had powers to grow crops and produce offspring. So this is the God, the king of Israel married into and built a temple for in the promised land. And Mount Carmel was a sacred place and there would have been idols to Baal. There would have been Asherah poles that would have been there at Mount Carmel. Now, we can read this story, listen to the story, and we think, well, look, we would never end up worshiping this 48-inch idol with a weird hat. But we have become infatuated with the idols of our day. If you were with us last week, you, Tim took us there and made us really reflect on that um, and, and reflect on, well, what are the 
cultural voices that cut against the grain of how we're supposed to follow Jesus? What, what are the voices that are opposed to his way of being in the world? What are things or ideas that I've attached my mind to and my heart to that are leading me astray from a life that looks like or is shaped like Jesus? And I want to pull over just for a second and really have us double down on that reflection that Tim led us in last week. Because again, if God's using this season to reveal things in us as a people in our church or in our culture, we really need to take advantage of that. We really need to pay attention to that. Now, if we were all sitting in a room together, I'm sure that we would all come up with this long list of idols. But what's painfully obvious to us in this season, I believe, is our worship of expressive individualism. And, and here's what I mean like that by that. I express my individualism into the world, and you have to agree with however I define myself. So sociologists have been studying this for years. They define it like this. They say to define one's deepest self and then express that to the whole world while disregarding the input of family, friends, previous generations, or religious authorities. It means that you and you alone are the judge of who you are and what you should do and how you should interact in society. It's what the Bible said about us generations ago when it describes us as being wise in our own eyes. You decide who you are and then you tell everybody, this is who I am and you must deal with me on the merits of how I identify myself. And all the constraints that people have thought about for thousands of years, those are all irrelevant in relationship to how I feel and how I tell you who I am. This is inside the church and out, from children to adults. It is pervasive in our society and in our culture. And the problem with this is that the Bible tells us you can't trust yourself. And also expressive individualism ends up in massive anxiety. People who are studying our culture and our world, there are studies right now that, 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 that we're the most anxious that we've ever been. And it's because leading yourself with no constraints and no one speaking into your life is more burden than you are designed to bear. To, to bear. And, and, and for the Christian, it's destructive because it leads us not to consult who Jesus is, but to consult Google or the next podcast or the next article. And, and so that the words of Jesus just become one of a hundred things that I consider. And instead of realizing that there's another way to live, like the way that people have lived for thousands of years, that it's not all up to me, uh, that I actually am joining in a story that was before me, that I live in a community that I'm submitted to now, that I'm part of making a world that will last forever and eternity, this, this can be and is incredibly settling if you allow it to be. It's the this kind of humility and submission can be freedom. This promise of liberty and this fighting for our own personal freedom, my own personal rights, my own personal liberty is incredibly anxiety-producing. And in ancient cultures, they would say, look outward to define yourself. Our modern cultures say, well, look inward to define yourself. But the scriptures teach us Look Godward. 
meaning look to Jesus. Look to the story of who God is and what he's doing. Allow God in the person of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, tell you who you are and what you are to be about. Because the gospel says that our identity is not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive. We're free because Christ has set us free. We are loved because we look at the cross and we see God who's wrapped in human flesh, living among us, crushed by the gears of this world and rising again to new life to say, listen, I love you so much that I suffered and I died on your behalf and you're free because I make you free. And this is love that God is willing to pay and suffer on your behalf. And so now that this thing called the church is a people of God who choose to first submit to God and then submit to one another, that, that we find a different kind of life and identity in Jesus. So how do you find freedom in this crazy world of expressive individualism? You learn to die to yourself. Matthew puts it this way. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. Paul in the book of Galatians says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Meaning like your freedom, your rights, your liberty, it's not even for you. But rather serve one another humbly in love. You're free to die to yourself. And if we just took a look at our social media accounts, we don't see a lot of dying to ourselves there. We're so compelled to put our perspectives, our opinions, our preferences online. What is that? They don't show us dying to ourselves. They show us extending massive amounts of energy put forth, actually propping ourselves up, even if it means tearing one another down. I have a friend who's a pastor and his parents are both unbelievers. And during this whole season, they're watching the social media accounts of their church and those who attend their church and their son's social media account. And they're just seeing people from the church attacking him and attacking each other. And she's asking her son, why? Why is your church doing this? Why are they treating you this way? Why are they treating each other? Church, this season has the potential to be an amazing, amazing season for evangelism, for those who are lost finding new life in Christ. But instead, we're devouring each other. This, this message of dying to yourself, of laying down your life for the good of the other, is all throughout the New Testament. It's the message of self-denial for the good of another at extreme cost to yourself for the fame of Jesus Christ in the world. And any form of discipleship that does not involve self-denial is not a discipleship of Jesus. It's not a way of growing with Jesus because Jesus says, look, give up your life. Find your life in me. And this cultural narrative, this idolatry that says, well, I'll just break any commitment and I'll jettison any relationship and I'll even walk away from faith or community so that I can be who I want to be. It's a lie and it's destroying us. We have to yield and submit and find life in Jesus submitted to him and to one another. Okay, back to the story as we end here. So God sends Elijah to his people with a word from him in verse 21. And this 
kind of ends our time here in, the, in this story. Elijah says this, go back to this. He says, how much longer will you waver? How much longer will you be hobbling between two opinions? Some versions say, how much longer will you limp back and forth between these two ideas? If the Lord is God, follow him, exclamation point. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. He says, look, if the Lord is God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. If, if God is God, then completely and extravagantly give him your life. If it's Baal, then give him your life, but stop going back and forth. We live in a culture that is so sure and so unsure. And Elijah's saying, look, it's time to make a decision. If it's God, follow him. If your idol is God, follow your idol. He's saying, I'd rather you 100% commit to your idol than 47% commit to God. Now, why would he say that? Because the sooner that you commit to that idol and quit playing games with yourself, you'll get to empty a lot faster that way. And it could be that you don't have any fire on your altar because you've had one hand up in worship and the other hand clinging to your idol. The, the call to make a decision came and then God showed up to answer the question, is it God or is it Baal? And fire falls. You see, God wants to make it clear to you. He, he wants to answer for you the question, is God for real? Is, is God powerful? Is God able? Is God for me? Can God come through when I need him? Can I trust God more than the opinions and the stories and the myths of culture? God wants to clear up the fact that he is God and he wants to make his name famous in your life. And if we look at the story, you see, what does the, the fire fall on? Okay, so why did Elijah put the water on there? Now, clearly he wanted there to be no doubt. And so he says, before I do my thing, get the bowl on there and get the jars of water and drench the sacrifice in the wood and the altar and dig a trench and water fills it up. So we got soaked bowl, soaked wood, trench of water all the way around, fire comes and burns it all up. And what God is saying is he wants us to, he wants to show up in our life in a powerful way. And he wants to show himself as the one true God in the story, but he can't bring fire unless there's a sacrifice. And that really is the key to worship because fire falls on your life when there's something on the altar. But what made Elijah's sacrifice different? Because it wasn't the bull, the other guys had a bull. It wasn't the wood because the other guys had wood. It wasn't the altar because they had a altar. And some people say, well, it's clearly the, the water um, because, you know, they're in a drought and the water uh, would be like they're pouring their very livelihood on it. We're taking the most precious possession that we have and we're pouring it out. And that's true. And that, that's a true perspective on that. But, but I think the water was partially about Elijah showing God how sh – showing – how serious he was and, 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 and partially about just making sure that there's no room for conspiracy theory here at this, the showdown. But what's ultimately the sacrifice here in this moment, the sacrifice is faith, confidence in who God is. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know what Elijah is saying here in this moment? He's like, look, there's no plan B. There's no plan C. There's no backup. There's no going back. 
either fire is going to fall from heaven right now and God is going to be glorified or I'll be killed and I'm going to see God today anyway. Either way, it's a win-win for me. And this kind of faith, this kind of faith that Elijah has on the altar and the kind of faith that we need if we want to see fire fall in our lives is the faith that says all my hope, all my confidence, all my trust is in Jesus. Because that is the extravagant sacrifice that grabs the attention of heaven and God shows up with fire and saves his kid. So how long has it been since fire has fallen on your life? And this is not about trying harder, doing better. It's, it's all about where are you kneeling down and who or what are you worshiping right now? And, and some of you, you want to know why there's no fire in your mountain. It's because Baal's in your back pocket. And you, you will not get fire on the altar of your heart as long as you hold on to a love affair of the gods of this world. And for some of you, even right now, and I know this is over a screen, weird and distant, but I believe even right now, some of you, the Holy Spirit is speaking so specifically, so specifically about what is the bail, what is the idol in your life. It could be a particular relationship. It could be your need for recognition from others. It could be a particular behavior or thought pattern or ideology. It could be some kind of success or stuff or some kind of political party, some kind of opinion, some kind of perspective. That's where all your hope and your confidence is in. That's where all your trust is in. And God is saying that has got to go. God says, you got to have faith in me. And I know it looks like, well, if I say goodbye to that stuff, feels like it's all over. But God is saying, look, if you put your faith in me again, all your hope and all your trust in me, again, if you put your confidence in me, it's far from over. In fact, I'll come through for you in a way that you could never even imagine. So put whatever you're trusting in to bring you life, to bring you satisfaction, to bring you joy put whatever that is on the altar and watch the fire fall, the spirit of God fall on your life and watch God set your heart on fire for him. Let's pray. Father, this is just so deeply convicting for me and God, it's just revealing to me so much um, of what is on the altar of my heart and the places I go and the things that I go to, God for satisfaction or joy, the things I've put my hope and trust in. God, I thank you that in your mercy, you um, are so faithful, God, to reveal those things and to push us towards eliminating those things that you, God, would have your rightful place in our hearts and our lives. And God, I pray that over myself and I pray that over our church. And God, I pray that in this season, God, that you would, that you would send fire. And God, that you'd burn up all the things that are causing um, just strife in our own hearts. And God, that are constantly failing us and constantly setting us up. And God, that you would once again reveal yourself as the one true God. That we would be a people who rally around that joyfully, giving you the worship and the adoration that you deserve humbly submitting to you and to one another for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
every week we come to this moment of communion. And communion for me um, answers a very simple but powerful question. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted in the way that Elijah trusted him? And there's two elements um, that resoundingly declare to me, yes, absolutely, God can be trusted. And that's the bread and the cup. Because the bread and the cup represent the person of Jesus Christ, a perfect life lived, a perfect sacrifice made, a powerful resurrection that is real and true. And if you have come to the place in your life where you know without a shadow of doubt, God, you can be trusted because of the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ, then take the bread and the cup, whatever element you're using at home, and eat and drink in remembrance and in celebration of who he is and the salvation we have because of his work and his work alone. Let's eat and drink.